Beloved, we are celebrating, we are remembering, we are commemorating the single most epic event in all of human history. This is an event that has been established. Uh, The world's calendar is split in two by virtue of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Everything before this event, the birth of Christ, is marked B.C., before Christ. Everything after is A.D., Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. And even our uh, woke friends and neighbors that try to sanitize the language and remove Christ from the dynamic by calling it and labeling it BCE before common era and after common era can't escape the fact that it is this momentous event that is splitting history. Beloved, this is the great event of world history. It is by far far and away above everything else. This is the most profoundly influential, the most deeply impactful, and the most dynamically shaping of all human history. At our men's big breakfast, our December men's big breakfast, besides the uh, fantastic food that was provided, Tim Palin, uh, the physical, literal food, Tim Palin, the chairman of our elder board, Uh, led the lesson through it, where he basically took us through some of the most wonderful, beloved, and well-known Christmas carols, Christmas hymns, taking us back to Scripture to point us to the source of the great doctrines and truth that we sing. And this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit similar. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. What we're going to do is we're going to do a flyover of Luke chapters 1 and 2, the birth narrative of Jesus. Now, in these first two chapters, there are five songs that are recorded. We're going to look at, again, in a flyover fashion, the first four of these five songs. We're going to see the song of two expectant mothers, a woman named Elizabeth and a beautiful young lady named Mary. We're going to have a song and look at the song of a man named Zacharias, who is Elizabeth's husband. And then the fourth song is sung by an angelic choir. And beloved, Luke chapters 1 and 2 is the gospel of the infancy. It abounds in dignity, beauty, and spirituality. Uh, Dr. Luke writes this abounding in historicity and accuracy and historical details. And what is Wonderful and beautiful and sublime and mysterious here is that God combines the ordinary and the extraordinary. He combines the natural and the supernatural. He weaves together the human and the divine. And beloved, uh, dear friend, if you're here visiting this morning, this is in light of, or I should perhaps even say in the darkness, the reality that our world is growing old. Our world is collapsing under the weight of its own emptiness. And when we think of the Christmas message, we ask the question, what is the Christmas message? What does it mean and why does it matter? And good Dr. Luke God, through good Dr. Luke, answers this for us in our passage this morning. In the first four verses of Luke, Dr. Luke lets his immediate audience, a man named Theophilus, the most excellent Theophilus, and all the believers that would read this at that point in time when Luke wrote it, or even us here today, 
that Dr. Luke did meticulous research. He interviewed people, and he put things down precisely so that we would understand the historicity and the accuracy and the veracity of what he has written, of the gospel according to Luke, of the good news of the forgiveness of sin that comes by way of the birth of the baby Jesus. But let's begin in verse 5 with our beginning treatment and look at this. You'll see these words, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So Luke introduces us to this priest, a certain priest named Zacharias. It's the same name as Zechariah in the Old Testament. And it means Yahweh remembered. So even the name of this old priest priest that we're introduced here tells us that God is a God who remembers. He remembers his covenant promises. And we read that both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth walked blamelessly with the Lord. They were walking blamelessly. This means they have an authentic life of obedience with consistency and integrity and authenticity before the Lord. And then look at what it says, picking up in verse 6. Now it came about, while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And what's taking place here is, according to Exodus, one priest, out of the Levitical priesthood would be chosen at this point in time by lot to go in to the holy place right up to the entrance of the holy of holy place and burn incense. This was the most sacred and the greatest honor and privilege of a man of a priest other than the high priest who would go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement. Now for old Zacharias this is something that we know from Exodus a priest could only do this once in his lifetime and statistically speaking most of the priests wouldn't get to do it. So this is a tremendous honor and privilege and literally a once in a lifetime in the case of Zacharias once at the end of an old age lifetime opportunity for him to minister in this way. But look at what takes place as we continue reading in verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now, beloved, what's taking place here is God is shattering the silence of 400 years of intertestamental silence. Since Malachi, uh, the last book in our English order of the Old Testament, he was the last one that was written. Since Malachi sent out his quill, there's been 400 years of silence from God. There's been no miracles. There's been no appearances of angels. But now, shattering the silence and piercing the darkness that was seeping over the land at this time, this angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias. The 
last appearance of an angel that we read in Scripture was actually the same angel in verse 19 here of Luke chapter 1. This angel identifies himself as Gabriel. And it was Gabriel in Daniel 9, some 500 years prior, that had appeared the last time. And Zacharias' response is natural. There's nothing more natural for a fallen creature to be utterly in abject terror when confronted with the presence of God, even in the appearance of a holy angel. But look at what the angel says to Zacharias in verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You see, Elizabeth and Zacharias, more to the point here, especially Elizabeth, is well past childbearing age. And what Luke is doing here is Luke is opening up really what God is doing in his perfect providential unfolding of his plan of redemption is bringing to us the lesser miracle, which was a legitimate miracle, of Elizabeth after menopause in her barren old age giving birth to a son named John to set the stage and to prepare us for the greater miracle, the birth of the baby Jesus. What God is doing here, beloved, is he is meeting the darkness of sterility with the light of fertility. And very similar to what we see even in the Old Testament, very often through the Old Testament, God would take situations of sterile women and would open up their womb to give birth, to demonstrate God's sovereignty and God's good plan. And so godly Elizabeth here joins an august lineup of godly women in, sorry, this is, well, yeah, never mind. I just realized there's like... (laughs) Sorry, uh, rewind, erase the tape. (laughs) Elizabeth is joining an august lineup of godly women from the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. And God is opening up, or God will open up her womb to give birth. Now, as you would read forward in verse 14, we see that Zacharias doesn't believe the message. Again, from verse 6, we know that Zacharias is a believer, but he is a saint. He is a saint. He is walking with his wife blamelessly before the Lord, but he sins here. But the reality is that even though Zacharias doesn't believe, Elizabeth still becomes pregnant. Because God is powerfully merciful and keeps his word, even his word to a sinning saint who doubts him. Now, let's pick it up in verse 26. And what we have in verse 26 of chapter 1 here is the first of the angelic birth announcements. The one of two, first of two, that we see in the first two chapters of Luke. As well as our introduction to a godly young teenager named Mary. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So what we see immediately is that in the same way that the angel Gabriel told Zacharias, do not be afraid. Here also he tells godly young Mary, do not be afraid. 
And now look at as I read verses 31 to 33. What you'll see here is Gabriel saying seven times. You'll see the word will seven times. These are seven statements of basically God saying, I will do this. As we read this, it's something Mary will do and other things will happen. But God is the sovereign agent behind these seven wills that you see that we hear in verses 31 through 33. Gabriel says, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Beloved, this is something that just continues the weight of God's good promises in the Old Testament. From the very beginning, even all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God was pouring out his judgment on Adam and Eve because of their sin, even in that situation, God did at that point say, I will come. God will send one who will come through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the evil one. And through the rest of From Genesis 4 through the Old Testament, it's a picture and a statement and a narrative of what God will do and what will happen by virtue of his good promise. Beloved, this is the seed of the Christmas message. This is the Christmas message. But at the very beginning in verse 26, we see that young Mary and Joseph were from the little village of Nazareth, an obscure village of maybe 2,000 people of humble origin. We might remember Nathaniel, one of the original disciples in John chapter 1, said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So it's just a reminder of the humble origin of this select, choice, godly young woman. And Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Mary's probably about the age of 13, maybe 14 at oldest. Uh, Joseph is maybe anywhere from 14 to 17 or 18, and they are formally betrothed. This is a sacred union. It's a binding union, but she is a virgin. It's an unconsummated union until the completion of their marriage, and that's why Mary, in verse 34, said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, beloved, If you are a Christian, you've been Christian for a while, you might understand that the virgin birth is absolutely at the center. It's an essential, non-negotiable doctrine of the beautiful truth and the beautiful fulfillment of even God's promise. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where God said through the prophet Isaiah that a virgin will be with child and his name shall be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So we understand that the virgin birth is right at the center of what is absolutely fundamental to the Christian message, to the Christmas message. Having said that, when we get to chapter 2, you will see that the birth is actually a natural birth. It's an ordinary birth. It's actually the conception that is supernatural. It is the conception that is very, very extraordinary. So When we say virgin birth, we are talking about the whole picture there. If we wanted to be a little more technically accurate, we would say the virgin conception. But in any event, I think we understand the point. We could put it this way, scientifically speaking. Mary will contribute the Y chromosome, but the X chromosome will be supernaturally created by God as the Holy Spirit will come and overshadow her. 
C.S. Lewis, the, the Christian professor at Oxford, was in his office uh, one Christmas season with a fellow faculty member who was an agnostic or perhaps even an atheist. He was a skeptical fellow professor of uh, C.S. Lewis. And at the time, there were college Christmas carolers singing Christmas hymns out in the college quad outside of C.S. Lewis's window. And his skeptical friend said, aren't you glad? And of course, in the Christmas hymns, in the Christmas carols, they were singing and rejoicing about the virgin birth, the virgin conception of Jesus. And so the skeptical professor said, aren't you glad that we know better than that? And Lewis was a little puzzled. He responded, well, pardon me, what precisely is your point? And his friend said, well, aren't you glad that we know better than they knew that virgins don't give birth? C.S. Lewis pondered it a bit and he said, don't you think they knew that too? That's precisely the point. So, beloved, this fact that a virgin, a choice, godly, chaste virgin became with child by virtue of the work of God is at the center of the Christmas message, is at the center of the good news. And then, beginning in verse 35, we'll read and see a picture of the response of Mary, the beautiful faith of Mary. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And just a side point on that, that's precisely what God told Sarah back with Sarah and Abraham about God's ability to give a child through Sarah. And then Mary's beautiful response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Beloved, what we see from Mary, even in that one verse, and when we look at the whole story, is Mary had a strong, amazing, wonderful faith. She was marked by fidelity. She was marked by humility. She was marked by bravery. And she was marked by fidelity, basically by belief. The angel spoke to her. God spoke to her through the angel. He spoke the word of God through the angel. And Mary believed. God said it. That settles it. And she said, I am your bond slave, your bond servant. I am the slave of the Most High God. That demonstrates her humility. But even her bravery. I mean, Mary won't be able to hide her baby bump. The whole town, the whole village of Nazareth and the surrounding community will understand that she is betrothed but not yet fully married. And she will, of course, relate the story, but there will be unbelievers, there will be pagans, and in a sense, her baby bump will be her scarlet letter in Nazareth. But this young 13, 14-year-old young lady is Again, a woman of fidelity, humility, and bravery. Beloved, God will place his son in the care of a brave, godly, young teenage virgin in an obscure location because God exalts the humble. This is the Christmas message. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is exalted, though Yahweh is exalted, he regards the lowly. And even as we would think of that little baby bump that will begin to grow in Mary, think of the divine glory in that baby bump of a pregnant teenager. Think of the divine glory which will 
be veiled in a baby in a feeding trough, even in a stable. We sang some beautiful words to that end. Well, beloved, that leads us to the first song of the four songs that we're going to fly over, and that's Elizabeth's song. And what we have here in verse 39 and forward, Elizabeth's song begins in the middle of verse 42, but in a moment I'll read beginning in verse 39. And what we have in verses 39 through 45 is an ordinary meeting of two expectant mothers as well as an extraordinary meeting, or maybe we should say an extraordinary meeting of two very extraordinary mothers. And this is also the meeting of two disciples. Actually, it's the meeting of the first two disciples we could think of when we think of someone that is following after Christ, someone who is trusting God here, even with the promise of this coming Messiah, this baby that will be born to Mary, and the forerunner, John, who will be born of Elizabeth. And the ordinary part of it, this is what mothers do. I mean, young expectant mothers get together and, you know, you can fill each other's tummy and you can talk about the drapes and the colors and the, you know, clothing and all the rest of that. That's that's the ordinary part. But in the most epic, wonderful moment of history, listen as I read verse 39. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, and here is where her song begins, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is he, excuse me, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now, one thing I'll say up front, and this applies to the song of Mary, as well as a song, excuse me, song of Elizabeth, as well as a song of Mary, Zacharias, the angels, and even Simeon at the end of chapter 2 that we won't get to. But what you'll see here is you'll notice that it says, Mary cried out with a loud voice and said, it doesn't say, sorry, Elizabeth, uh, cried out with a loud voice and said. It doesn't say Elizabeth sang. In fact, when we look at Mary, it says Mary said. Zacharias was saying, the angelic choir in chapter 2, verse 14 is saying, and then even the song of Simeon, it says he said. It, they didn't sing it, they said it. But the point here is this, that what erupts from their hearts in praise and adoration and joy and thanksgiving to the Lord is filled with beauty and poetry. We put these beautiful doctrines and these beautiful words from these different songs into beautiful songs that we sing here with music and we call them songs. But they're not really songs when they sang it. And another item to help us understand this. For example, at the end of the service, we'll sing the beautiful song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, with doctrines and truth that come out from the pages of Luke chapters 1 and 2. And Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, has a much better ring to it than Hark the Herald Angels Say, the baby there in the midst of the hay. That just doesn't catch it quite as well. So we call them songs, but we just make note of that. Now, beloved, again, two extraordinary mothers, but they're meeting 
is very ordinary. This is what mothers do. Also note this, that these two mothers are separated by generations, and these two expectant mothers. They're also separated by geography, one in the north and one in the south. The generational part, when we look at Elizabeth's age, at that time especially, she easily could have been at the same generation as Mary's great-grandmother. And one was in the north and one was in the south. But these two expectant mothers are bonded by their like-minded faith. They're bonded by their godliness. And they're bonded by, that's the, in one sense, the ordinary part of it. And they're also bonded by their extraordinary selection by God. And the point here with the backdrop of the Christmas message is the gospel unites generations and the gospel unites geographies. That is the Christmas message. And we can even think in the context of those 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi, that how many parents and grandparents had read the stories and rehearsed and talked about the promises that came from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Joel and from Malachi to their babies, to their children. Then those children grew up and became parents and then grandparents, and they read them. And again and again and again, generation after generation, century after century, waiting. The prophetic voice had been silent for 400 years, but now the prophetic voice returns. Baby John will be the next and last Old Testament prophet. But before that, Elizabeth, who was a daughter of the Old Covenant, she becomes the first singer of the New Covenant. She has the first song of this new dawn that is breaking, that is piercing the darkness and shattering that silence. A godly older woman, that is Elizabeth's song. And that takes us to the second song, to Mary's song. Uh, Mary's song in verses 46 through 55. It's called the Magnificat. Uh, You may have heard that before. And it extols and enlarges and magnifies God that just flows from the ebullient praise that's in Mary's heart. And what we'll see in this beautiful song is that the greatness of God, and this is something that's not relegated just to this song, we see the same dynamic in all of Scripture in the Bible, namely that the greatness of God is revealed in both his separation from us as well as his intimacy with us. Who is man, the psalmist says to God, who is man that you, the holy God, would be mindful of? So God's greatness is revealed in both his transcendence as well as his imminence. Let's begin reading in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations shall count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And then in verses 51 through 54, look at how seven times Mary rehearses and remembers things God has done in the past. Seven times she says, 
for he has done, he has done this. Verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Beloved, what Mary is doing here is right at the very beginning. I I normally like the New American Standard translation, but I I don't like verse 46. For my soul enlarges uh, the Lord. My soul is, yeah, my soul, no, sorry, my soul exalts the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Other translations say that. My soul has magnified the Lord. Mega lune. And that's, I, I like that. It's, this is why it's called the Magnificat, the Latin word for magnify there. And we can ask the question right there at the beginning, how can a creature magnify the creator? How can the finite enlarge the infinite? And maybe a good way for, it to understa- for us to understand this is in the same way, we may have very dim eyesight, but if we have a lens and we put something before the lens, it will enlarge that object and so that we can see it more clearly. And that's what God does to us. When we look at him through the pages, through the lens of Scripture, he becomes larger and we can see more clearly. When we point people to God and provide the lens of Scripture to them, that enlarges. Of course, God himself doesn't and can't be enlarged. He is omnipresent. He is infinite. But in the heart and mind of a child of God, that is what is at work here. And then even as we think of those sevenfold, he has, he has, he has, what Mary is doing here is what she treasures in her heart, the abundance of her heart pours forth from her mouth. It's an expression of her lips to what she treasures in her heart. Uh, the baby Jesus who grows into man Jesus taught that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so when Mary speaks in response here, that gives us a glimpse into what is filling her heart, namely the very word of God. And all this, by the way, while she is in her beautiful, sweet young mother body, while she is literally building the body of Jesus in her womb. Also, Elizabeth said, my Lord. Mary says in verse 47, my Savior. God, my Savior. We, looking at Elizabeth's song, we saw that old Elizabeth is the birth song. Elizabeth, older Elizabeth's song is the birth song of the new. She's looking forward to what God is doing as he's opening up the floodgates of his blessing. Young Mary's song here is the swan song of the old. And just the beautiful, sublime blending together and wonder of God towards that should give us awe and praise to him. And one last thing I'll mention here, notice in both Elizabeth's song and Mary's song what is absent. It's the one-letter word, I, You won't find the word I in either of their songs because it's all about God. Despite the fact these two godly women were receiving the tremendous blessing from the Lord. It's about God. Elizabeth's song, Mary's song. Now it takes us to the third song, Zacharias' song. 
Um, I'm not going to read it here, but in verses 57 through 66, you'll read the birth of John. And what took place was back in the earlier part of chapter 1, when John had his doubt, God basically judged him and struck him dumb, struck him mute, so that for nine months, Zacharias wasn't able to speak. And this was part of God's judgment, temporary judgment on a saint who sinned. But what happened was at the very end of it in verse 63, Zacharias asked for a tablet. This is after John has been born and wrote as follows. His name is John and they were all astonished. Verse 64, and at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. So beloved, what's taking place here is God is removing the punishment from Zacharias. His powers of speech are immediately restored. So for nine months, he wasn't able to say anything. Then all of a sudden, he erupts in this song that will begin picking up in verse 68 and forward. And when God heals someone, whether he heals someone from a disease they've had from birth, when God heals some from someone from a disease they've had some, from some other point of his life, or even when he heals someone from a judgment and a situation like this, it is instantaneous and total. Zacharias didn't have to wash his throat out with mouthwash to be able to speak clearly. And what comes from this is one more eruption of praise to God in this song. Mary's song, by way of contrast, was more personal. As we saw, she praised God for sending her a personal Savior. Zacharias' song that we'll read here is more of a broad stream of redemptive history pointing to God's covenant promises to Abraham and to David and the New Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, and the New Covenant. Also note this, in Verses 68 through 75, you'll see that Zacharias talks about what God has done in the past. But then in verses 76 through 79, Zacharias will pivot and begin talking about what God will do in the future. So again, this third song is broader in scope. Listen, and I'll begin reading in verse 67 to set the stage. And his father, John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is a spirit-filled family. John the baby, not the fetal clump of cells, John the baby inside Elizabeth's womb was filled with the Holy Spirit. Godly Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit-filled family. And he prophesied saying, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then again, now look at how he pivots and starts talking about what God will do. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. 
because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Beloved, one word that we want to point out here is the word visited. In verse 68, he began by saying, God has visited us. In verse 78, he say, says, he will visit. The sunrise from on high will visit. The word translated as visit in both 68 and 78 is a rich, deep word. It describes looking after the sick. It describes coming to help someone to show care for. It's describing the tender care of the Lord. And Zacharias even sums it up in verse 78 when he says, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beloved, at this epic moment in the annals of history, this is when the night retreats and the shadows fall away. Those who were sitting in the darkness, pining in the darkness, are now walking in the light. Beloved, this is the Christmas message. Friend, in Christ, by virtue of the birth of the baby, sadness is turned into gladness. There is light where there was darkness. There is safety where there was eternal danger. When Jesus comes, friend, there is right where there was wrong, healing where there was sickness and brokenness, freedom where there was bondage, joy where there was despair and sadness, and delight where there was discouragement and depression. Beloved, this is the Christmas message. This is the result of Jesus Christ coming and being born. So the song of Elizabeth, the song of Mary, the song of Zacharias, the fourth song is a song of a mighty innumerable host of angels, an angelic choir. Now, before we start looking, and that's, by the way, in verse 14, in our public reading of Scripture earlier, I read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And let me say this. If you've been here for a while, you might pick up the fact that when I'm preaching and I relate some story that I'm not sure whether or not it was true, I open up with the words, uh, the story is told. That's an indication, and I don't know if it's a historical narrative or it's a legend, but the point comes out. What I want you to pick up here is, look at chapter 2, verse 1. The way Dr. Luke opens up here, he says, Now it came about in those days. And then verse 6, it came about that while. So the point here is, Luke doesn't open up chapter 2 with the words, once upon a time. Because this is not a fairy tale. This is not Narnia. This is not Middle Earth. This is not the multiverse. This is real history with real details, with real people in real places and real locations at a real point in time. And Luke firmly grounds his gospel in history. We read of Caesar Augustus, of Quirinius. Uh, we saw that even back in chapter 1, verse 5 of Herod as well. And what we have here is Luke bringing out to help us understand that what he writes here is true and is accurate. 
I'll, I'll give you another example. Back in chapter 1, I think it's around uh, verse 11 or 12, but when the angel Gabriel, well, we're told in verse 19 of chapter 1 that the angel that appeared to Zacharias was Gabriel, it says that Gabriel, the angel, appeared on the right side of the altar. That's a little seemingly insignificant detail, but it's something that was told Luke when he was doing his research, when he was doing his interviews. And so the point is, God wants us to understand that this is not myth, this is not legend. This is what really happened, what really took place. And we see at the beginning of chapter 2 that Caesar Augustus, the mighty emperor of Rome, issues a decree that causes Joseph and Mary to go back to their hometown of Bethlehem to have their baby, which fulfills God's promise and God's prophecy in the book of Micah. Beloved, the point is that this ungodly emperor issues this earthly decree that all be registered for the census in order to be taxed by imperial Rome. But this earthly decree is done in the backdrop in obedience to a heavenly decree that took place ages and ages before, in fact, in eternity past. It's in fulfillment of God's eternal decree when God the Father promised God the Son excuse me, that he would give him a gift of a redeemed humanity, that God the Son would come into the world to redeem his people. Beloved, it's a reminder that armies may march, the governments of the nations may think they control the affairs of men with their executive orders and such, but the mighty men of earth are only dust in the chariot wheels of God's mighty providence. And as we go forward from verse 1, we go from the mighty emperor Caesar Augustus to a mighty governor Quirinius, and we progress to the most vulnerable, a baby in a feeding trough. And by the way, Caesar, Caesar is a title kind of like king or emperor. Augustus is a title that means esteemed, revered, honored. In fact, the nation of Israel shrank back away from using the title Augustus because most of Israel rightly understood that God and God alone is August. And what's amazing is that as we progress through chapter 2, we see that the baby will be in a manger because there's no room for Jesus Augustus in the inn. And in verses 6 and 7, as we read before in the scripture reading at the beginning, the birth of Jesus is an ordinary birth. It's related in a verse and a half demonstrating a staggering simplicity. Verse 6, it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Again, it's an ordinary birth. I'm sure sweet young Mary, I'm sure it was very painful for sweet young Mary to give birth on this side of the Garden of Eden. So it's an ordinary birth, but the conception was anything but ordinary, and this child is ordinary in one sense in that he is 100% man. He will be tempted just as we are tempted. He will have to learn. He will have to grow. He, he, will, he may touch things he shouldn't touch, but then as he's growing up as a toddler, when he's told don't touch that, he'll never touch it again. He is sinless, and that's the extraordinary part of it. Isaac Williams, in his book, The Nativity, said this, The unfathomable depths of the divine counsels are moved. The fountains of the great deep are broken up. 
The healing of the nations is issuing forth in this manger, but nothing is seen on the surface of human society but the slight rippling of the water. When we think of this little baby, there's no royal robes. There's no fancy clothing. He doesn't come into the world with a little halo over his head. He comes out like everybody else comes out. Caesar is sleeping in his palace on a golden bed with the finest silk linens surrounded by and attended by his praetorian guard. Baby Jesus sleeps in a feeding trough attended by animals. The contrast, beloved, this, friend, this is the Christmas message. And then that takes us to the angelic birth announcement and a choir. It's the angelic birth announcement of one angel, very possibly likely Gabriel, although he's not identified in verse 8 and forward. And what is amazing is that this angelic birth announcement, the second one after the one that was given by Gabriel to Zacharias, doesn't come to Caesar Augustus' palace. It doesn't come to Quirinius' estate. It doesn't come to the priests in the temple. It comes to a bunch of shepherds. It comes to a group of people that in the eyes of the society at that time, they were the most despised. They were insignificant. They were uneducated and unskilled. They worked with animals and they smelled like animals. Because, beloved, God comes to the least and the last and the left out. And friend, again, that is the Christmas message. Remember Mary's song in chapter 1 verse 48, God has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And then in verse 52, and has exalted those who are humble. What God is doing here is he's giving a QED. He's giving a proof positive. Let's see that in action. Well, look nowhere else than these uncouth, uncultured, uneducated shepherds. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And this is the Shekinah glory of God. This is the manifestation of God through the appearance of an angel in glowing, brilliant, shining, incomprehensible light. I, I just mentioned the phrase of Shekinah glory. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, the veiled manifestation of the glory of God would appear in the tabernacle. It would appear in the temple. And in 586 B.C., we read of this in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 10, the glory of the Lord was in the temple where the leaders of Israel were worshiping the sun and were pagan-worshiping animals. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, the Shekinah glory of the Lord rose up and departed from Israel, and it's been gone ever since. The point is here, when it comes back, doesn't go to the palace, doesn't go to the estate, doesn't go to the temple. It goes to these lowly shepherds. And they were terribly frightened. I like what King James says. And they were sore afraid. Beloved, when the glory of God was visible on the planet, people hid their eyes from it. They were overwhelmed by it. They were driven to their knees in front of it. Because, again, nothing is more natural for fallen man than to be terrified in the presence of God but just as he did to Zacharias and to Mary verse 10 the angel said to them don't be afraid don't be afraid and now we see in this fourth song the reason why 
Why? Because the attitude, and by the way, when it says the shepherds were sore afraid, they were literally mega afraid. And the antidote to their mega fear is news of mega joy. At the end of verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, of a mega joy, which shall be for all the people. And beloved, the great mega news of great joy is for all nationalities, it's for all ethnicities, it's for all ages, it's for both genders. And this baby who is Messiah will reach the outcasts of society, he'll reach the lowlifes, he'll reach the nobodies, the prostitutes, the sinners, the drunkards, the tax collectors, even the lawyers. I said that with my friend Scott in audience before and apologize. And then verse 11, beloved, is the Christmas message encapsulated. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Look at verse 11. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Beloved, dear friend, Jesus was not born to add to the sum of our happiness. He was born to save us from our sins. This is the Christmas message message and then finally we have the fourth song the song of an army of angels in verse 14 an innumerable host of voices a heavenly chorus basically heaven sweeps down and lands in Bethlehem's plains and the hills around Bethlehem and they're carpeted with a multitude an untold number of an angelic host verse 13 And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. Beloved, the army of angels comes to announce peace and comes to announce the terms of peace. Verse 14, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace among men with whom he is pleased please. Glory to God in the highest. Um, We're not singing it today, but the beautiful Christmas hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High, with the refrain, Gloria in excelsis Deo. These angels, that was the first Gloria in excelsis Deo sung by them. But we want to ask the question as we finished, what does it mean, peace among men with whom he is pleased? How can sinful man, how can a sinful woman be pleasing to God? Beloved, dear friend, God entered this enemy-occupied world and landed as a baby. The shepherds, in verses 15 through 20, will go to Bethlehem to see this great thing that God has done, and they will find the baby just like any other baby without any distinguishing marks, with the exception of he'll be in a feeding trough. I mean, in Bethlehem, in the village of Bethlehem, and around at that time, there could have been two, three, four, five babies that are wrapped in swaddling cloths, but there will only be one baby lying in a manger. And it is only with eyes of faith that the shepherds would go to a manger and see a baby in a feeding trough and say here is the king of kings here is the lord of lords here is the creator of the cosmos the promised one the messiah it is only through eyes of faith that they would do that friend in the same way it is only with eyes of faith only with ears to hear the word of god and eyes to see that someone would look at 
a crucified man on a cross between two thieves and say here is my lord here is my king here is my messiah here is my savior the shepherds in verses 15 through 20 they don't need a particular invitation they don't need instruction in royal protocol on how to approach a king there are no armed guards that will be around the son of god pushing them away and telling them to keep their distance beloved Never on earth could a being have been more approachable than this baby in these humble means. His hand is always ready to stretch out to the sick. His garment is always within their reach, even as he grows up. His ear is always open to your cries. No class or rank is excluded. No form of etiquette etiquette is necessary for entrance. Point is, all are welcome. This is the Christmas message. And we know that wise men, wise women still search for him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Amos says, seek the Lord so that you may live. Beloved, this is the good news of great joy for outcasts, lowlifes, tax collectors, lawyers, nobodies, prostitutes, drunkards, and sinners for all. And friend, Is today the day you lay down your arms of rebellion? You see, Jesus was born that we might be delivered from our vain schemes and our proud assertions. May our rebellion be crushed by the might of his tender mercy. This is a Christmas message, even that we'll sing in the beautiful hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gospel news. We thank you for the announcement of the birth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect, sinless life of perfect obedience. We praise you and thank you for your supernatural power you demonstrated over creation, over disease, death, and sin. We praise you and thank you for your voluntary death at the cross and your victory over the grave, and even your ascension to the right hand of the Father. And we praise you and thank you, Lord God, that anyone, any man or woman, young or old, educated or uneducated, any ethnicity may come to you, ask for forgiveness, and you tell us in your word that you will receive that person, that man, that woman, that child to yourself, adopt them into your family, make them a new creature in Christ Jesus where old things have passed away and new glorious eternal life things will come. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.